Welcome to the Liberation Lab podcast, insights and interviews for the disruptive educator. I'm honored to have my sis on. I'm going to let her introduce herself. So why don't you tell the people who you are, what you do, and why you do it. All right. My name is Keisha Garrison, and my profession is I'm a professional host and MC. I do um, event leading and lead conversations that help drive professional, personal, uh, and societal shifts for the positive, you know, in our society. So those are the types of things I do. I have hosted many large-scale events, lots of community events, and interviewed countless community um, business educational leaders. That's my my main profession, but I'm also a multidisciplinary artist, and I am a person who seeks to work on projects that improve outcomes for people that I care about. And oftentimes as black folks and black women and girls, uh, I'll share my current project is called Hey Black Seattle. I'm building an information hub to support black people in our area to find the black cultural experiences and community connections that they need to thrive while living in the Pacific Northwest. I love it. I love it. Um, my, uh, Put, put all my cards on the table to start us off. Uh, this whole season, again, has been focused on healing and humanity. And, you know, before I hit record, we were talking about just how either it's been systematically removed or allowed to wither away in our schools. And so I'm thinking about the aspects of what it means to to lead, serve, teach, um, and construct spaces of that promote healing, and harmony for our um, our black girls. And so to do that, I would love to just hear about your K to 12 experience and what that was like for you. Um, it's just an embodied experience for people to kind of, you know, hear where you're coming from. Wow. The, my K to 12 experience had a lot of ups and downs. I grew up in the deep South, we like to say in uh, Oakdale, Louisiana. So this was a time, this was um, the 80s, 90s, and you would think that 80s and 90s, we had come to a certain point in our progression with education, but my town was still fairly socially segregated. And so while we all went to the same school in this small town, every school experience I had at K-12 was also thick with a layer of racial tension. Mm. So some of my earliest memories um, in elementary school are of teachers supporting really um, racist trauma for me as a child in that environment. Um, some of those memories are, I remember a young young boy, Bobby didn't want to hold my hand. We were in kindergarten uh, lined up and you're supposed to pair up as buddies. And I remember the teacher um, saying to him that he didn't have to because he had said that his parents didn't want him to touch. You know, Well, he, he went with the the N-word, but he was so he wasn't supposed to touch black people. And in that that hurtful moment for me as a child, I was not backed up. He was supported in his um, request to not have to touch a black person. And so things like that, indignities like that continued throughout elementary school. I had a an English teacher, a grown woman, throw throw um, a binder across the room at me. And then once she got um once this was called to attention, she put on like a, a, a arm brace to make it seem like I had hit her. This was elementary school still. Like she she cried and pretended that she was assaulted by me and that, that this whole incident stemmed, stemmed from something I had done. 
And so this type of like, these things were very confusing to me as a young girl to not know why these things were happening to me. But at the same time, I was also very encouraged academically. There was always someone in the school, whether it was another um, black person or another woman or something, there was always someone, whether it's a coach who was just like, we see what you're capable of and we want to push you, push you to excellence. And my mother was very big on education. And so I wasn't allowed to make grades lower than an A. Mm. And I say allowed, meaning like I would get in trouble. I had a very yeah. extreme level of push towards you need to be excellent because the other path has has things you don't want in it. And so I'm going to overcorrect and like make sure you stay on this path. So I was very hyper-focused on being excellent academically, existing inside of an environment that actively worked against that excellence because they didn't want to see it. Yeah. And um, grappling with all of that without really full understanding of why it was all happening. You know, at the time of this recording, uh, I could hear people say like, wow, that was horrible that you went through that. And 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 always we have a recency bias, right, where we want to say, well, things are better now because we're moving in a more, quote unquote, progressive way. And at the time of this recording in Florida, few days ago, black students were called by name, gone down up, uh, asked to go down to the auditorium to sit down at a presentation. And in this presentation, they stated uh, that we're supposed to be at 41% proficiency or, you know, with our black students and y'all are failing. And if you don't get these grades right, you will be in, you will end up shot or in jail. Mm. This is this is what they thought was a good idea to to encourage, to to raise the standard of excellence. We care about the progress of all students and therefore we called all the black ones. And um, there's a young girl who was allowed to be interviewed by Fox 35 in Florida and she is a fourth grader and she has straight A's. Yet and still, she was called down to sit in front of this auditorium to be talked to about how she had done, how they had done on the test. And so it lets you know that it has nothing to do with grades, performance, or desire for excellence. It has everything to do with anti-blackness. And so when I hear your story, and thank you for sharing so vulnerably and bravely, I think we, we haven't moved the needle much that this is still a reality for so many in our schools. Yeah. And, you know, there's a sense of frustration. Uh, I would love for you to chime in because I think, you know, I know many things, but I do <laughs> not know what it's like to be a black woman. Yeah. So I, when you hear those accounts, what do you think? I think about how, to your point, you said that people think that maybe we've gotten to a certain place because, oh, they'll see, well, we had... Michelle Obama and Kamala Harris are like, there's, you can point to a whole bunch of successful black women or black women who've achieved certain things. And, and you think, well, look at where we've gotten, isn't it great? But all of the ills of the country or the world, you can still see them present. And when those, when those things are still part of the society, when you still have so many people being really loud and proud about bigotry and, 
harmful thoughts that they have about black women, black girls, black people. Um, when you still have that, wherever that still exists, we're still going to see those things manifested in this classroom against our children. They are not, it's not like a special protective zone where once everybody walks through the classroom doors or the school building doors, now we have this utopia where education is the primary thing. All of those yeah. people are bringing in all the same biases that you see in the comment section when Shakari Richardson breathes a word and then you see the vitriol towards her being a proud, loud black woman who's not backing down. You can see what the comment section says. Well, the comment section people they exist mm. in every space that our children occupy. And yeah. so they also have the, you know, they're the guidance counselor at the school telling your kid what their possibilities are. And so okay. when the same person who is expressing those things in public meets a girl who reminds them of Shikari in the classroom, what do you think they're going to do? So mm. as long as it's still here in our, in our, here with us in society, it's in, it's with our kids in school. You know, the the piece about forgetting the reality that people who type those things online exist in real life. I think sometimes we forget. You know, like it's so much easier to to say these things when you got, you know, what Drake called Twitter fingers, right? <laughs> and and so you, you, you do all those things online, but it's not like that ideology goes away once you swipe up and close the app, right? You, you, you see the, uh, all those things enacted in our world. I remember to your point, I got accepted to college. I was going to be the first one in my family, um, first generation uh, to go to college. And I shared with my guidance concert, like, you know, I got accepted here and I'm about to go here. Now it was the cheapest school in Jersey at the time. And it was still a quality education for what I was going to do. And I, and I was proud. And she almost acted like it was a disappointment and and all of these things. And I think about that to this day. Uh, I think about, and I've shared this before, but like being in sixth grade and being one of two black students, me and uh, uh, another black young girl in the uh, honors classes and being told that because I got B's and C's, a lot was going on. And then I buckled down, got A's and B's, my last market period that I did not belong that she hand wrote this, like this was intentional. She wrote it and said, you do not belong in the gifted and talented program. And those words wow. haunted me wow. for years up until grad school. Really? I never mm. really felt like I was good enough. And, mm. and so there are educators who are inevitably listening, um, who are some maybe doing this work already trying to, grapple with the anti-blackness they that they might espouse to some of them who are dealing with the anti-blackness i just want to put this out there look like you and i absolutely um and so we all have a part to play in this work if you had to blank canvas paint anew what a healing space a welcoming space a space of belonging could look like for black girls in schools what are some of the things that you would want to want included in this canvas that you're constructing i had the the blank space it would look so different yeah. from what we're experiencing even just from the structure of the days 
And, you know, some people might see what I think of as a healing space and a learning environment as chaos, but the, um, I would remove a lot of the replication of just the order that, that students have to adhere to. I think that there are some things that, that happen inside of schools that feel like unnatural to yeah. the body. So if we starting really early in the morning, I would, as a young black girl, I would like to come in and start with some sort of like mental and spiritual alignment for myself, some sort of like calibrating of my soul to my, my body, all the things that we're about to do. Because to just come in after the hustle and bustle of getting ready to go to school, shuttling to a place and then getting plopped into this, okay, and now be orderly and now don't mm -hmm. move and mm -hmm. now go from here to there without question. Now you need to ask when you need to go to the bathroom. I think that there is just a basic like restructuring of what human needs need to be handled in a day. And that also includes our physical, spiritual, and mental needs outside of what information are we stuffing into the children and the young people. Yeah. So there is first an acknowledgement that I am a, I'm a soul with actual body that has needs. And I've probably experienced some things at home that I also need to like get clear about before we move forward with the day. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to your point, that we have to do a better job of how we pathologize black and brown folk, particularly black folk, particularly black women, right? Uh, the adultification of black women, uh, black girls in schools, right? We don't let girls be girls. No. We have expectations, demands. We, we say how they should show up. Uh, we, we want silent and compliant. We, we don't want opinionated. We don't want, uh, you know, any sense of strength or determination because we've allowed capitalism, patriarchy, misogyny to construct in our minds how a woman should show up. Yes. And no one, even those um, who are having this conversation are exempt for how we either align and comply or how we show up and resist. Mm -hmm. I see it with my daughter. My daughter is, I'm not going to take no for an answer. She is, I am going to figure out a way to make this work. I am go and And these are all qualities that she is going to need in the world that she is going to, like the world that is not mm -hmm. made for her. Exactly. I, as a father, have a responsibility to steward this gift that is my daughter. And if I allow the things that have harmed yourself, that stand up against our black girls in schools to tap into my daughter, then I'm only uh, playing the part, right, of misogyny, of anti-blackness that exists in our world. And so I steward the gift that is my daughter. But if you don't have that history, if you don't have that understanding, then literally like a part in a play you can be taken out somebody else can be put in and it continues to run yes yes let's say the teacher is listening to you and says well wait a minute i love black people i have five black friends uh, <laughs> uh and all the things that we like to say oh well, i don't see color all the things all the defense mechanisms that come up um how can they be made aware if you will of the ways in which they might espouse this, these, these beliefs. 
it's it's so common this whole notion of like I, I'm a good person and I mean well you know by the people that I encounter but the, the truth is if you don't have any understanding or education about what you know what the black girl or the black woman's experience of the world is you don't even know how to be kind where to apply extra kindness when needed where to apply extra grace when needed where to, you you can't know where the spots are to even address the needs if you haven't taken time to understand the needs so there's going to be some need for intentional like reading intentional listening Actually, you know, don't just speak for or speak about. How often do you even speak with a black girl? What conversations are you having about the ideas that you come up with in your head? Do you actually talk to a black girl or some representation of them to find out how would this affect you? How would this actually show up in your day if we did this or if I did this or I made this policy decision or this? Like, do you actually speak with the people that you seek to help to even understand today's impact because you could you could watch a whole bunch of documentaries too but they aren't going to tell you about what is happening for the young people with social media and the, the things mm-hmm. that they're facing today so yeah. i would say be open to actually hearing the voices and listening to the people that you think you're helping yeah. because your areas that you have ignorance around will in could end up leading you to cause harm with the help that you're trying to, to insert in. Uh, uh, so, so agree. It resonates so deeply because of the ways in which, you know, um, one of my core convictions as a educator, as a person is that of restorative practices. And when I think about the, the social discipline window, right, you can, you can exist doing things to students you can exist doing things for students, right? You can do, exist doing things, uh, I'm gonna use the word against, cause I forget the wording, against students or, or without them, right? Neglecting them, or you can do them with them, right? And mm-hmm. and this exists in every part of life. I don't care, you take students out, put any other people group in. And, and what you find by and large is that people want to exist in the two stage, right? Because if I do things to somebody, it's easier for me. I don't have to think about the the end result, the cost. I don't have to think about how it plays out, who's affected, why it happened. No, no. This is something that's happening to you and it's not happening to me. Mm-hmm. And that's the operative point. Yeah. In schools, we have espoused this to action. You broke a rule. This is happening to you. You showed up outside of my expectations. This is happening to you as a result. And then we wonder why there's no buy-in. There's no culture that we, we've espoused. There's no climate that we want because we've done things to people, but we expect them to still show up for us. Very interesting dynamic. I, Sounds a lot like the world we live in. Please jump in. And it's, it's very indicative of how we learned leadership in our society. We learn to lead through the model of how oppressors lead. And so oppressors were often doing things to people, marginalized people. And so that's still the dynamic. That's how the model of leadership we learn. So when you get ready to lead, you do have to ask yourself the question, am I about to do things to people? Am I going to do a version of leadership that is tantamount to oppressive practices? Like how we imagine our roles, how we can imagine what can be 
has been shaped for us by what we saw. And until we give ourselves permission to even say like what you said earlier about what the blank space is, yeah. no constraints. Yeah. Some constraints are here to support safety first for vulnerable people to create some sense of order, but some constraints that we have and we operate within as leaders or whoever we claim to be, some, some of those constraints are there to keep oppressive systems running smoothly and running in their optimal way. And so until you can develop the thought as a leader to say, I'm going to question my thoughts about what constraints and what, what I need to hold in place yeah. by doing things to people until you can question that you're just going to keep replicating harm. Yeah. Yeah. And there are folks who, who then move to the, I want to call it the savior complex, right? Well, the response is, well, if I'm doing things too, well, now I need to step in and, and, and push against this trend. But then you go to the four category. That's the name I couldn't remember before. You mm. go to the four category and now I'm not doing it with you anymore. You know, you're not an agent. You have no agency with me. No, I'm going to do it for you. Hush. I know what's ailing you. Let me step in and do it for you. Don't you don't have a voice in the in the remedy. You don't have a voice in the cure or all the things that need to happen as a result. I know better than you. So now I'm going to do it for you. And these are well-meaning people. I've seen it. They want to gather clothes and they want to figure out um, what food to 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 uh, to offer. But they don't ask the people what food they like. They don't ask mm. people what kind of clothes they want to wear. No, no, no. I'm just going to gather and and you should just be happy yeah. that I've stepped in and done this for you. And mm -hmm. so when you step into that lane and do things for what kind of harm, what what kind of things might that person uh, not realize that they're doing towards? And I'm going to specifically yeah. center black girls. What are they doing in that instance? Oh, people who's you know because like there's so many areas of help yeah that are <laughs> that are trying to be given but and i'm searching for one right now but there's so many times where we can reinforce behaviors because let me just let me just go where my brain went when you were saying all of that Please. my where my brain went was the ways that we train black girls to be recipients of that kind of so-called help mm -hmm. the whole if you think about even the dynamics of between men and women and how we we often teach girls especially you know people in certain religious contexts teaching black girls about being uh is subservience not the word i'm losing the word right now but Sub just submissive yes yeah, submissive submissive to be like submissive to be a second to be a helper to be a person who's the the lieutenant, but not the captain, or like you're supposed to be second, your needs don't typically come first. And so we kind of train them to be like, look, one of the ways that you are good, one of the ways that you are a good black girl, you become a good black woman mm -hmm. is by being not the present voice in your life, not the biggest voice in your life. Yeah. You're here to support another big voice in your life. Mm -hmm. And so when someone else comes around saying, I got the help for you. I got the answer for you. We've already primed our girls to be thinking that they should be expecting someone else to have the answer for them. 
And so some of the things we can do is make sure that our girls grow up knowing your voice should be the loudest voice in your own life so that we don't prepare them to take whatever BS is about to come their way in the words of, I got the answer for you. Yeah. The, the same young girls who were told that we have the answer for you grew up to be, you know, women who have to go to hospitals or maybe they choose to go to hospitals to give birth and then are told, I know what's best for you. And then we have mortality rates that are through the roof because we refuse to listen. We yes. refuse to, to, and to the point where there's a case recently that I saw where a poor baby was decapitated and the doctor, a black woman where we, these things are in, we're socialized mm-hmm. to believe and espouse these things. And, and so it makes it really difficult for, for our, our mess, our less melanated uh, counterparts to understand that these things exist. Cause they'll say, well, whoa, this is a black person. Whoa. Right. You don't have to have a certain hue level of melanation to espouse anti-black beliefs and sentiments mm-hmm. comes in all shapes and sizes all shapes and sizes and, and i think about we give our young women mixed messages which mm. i imagine must be so confusing because we do tell them all the time you know to you got to stand for yourself you got to do these things but that's not what life is backing them up like the experience the day-to-day experience of being a black girl and based on what you get reprimanded for what you get rewarded for mm-hmm. is showing black girls that we expect them to not speak for themselves yeah and when they when we speak for ourselves it gets coded in certain ways as the overly aggressive the whatnot and there's mm-hmm. just all the all the ways that we're villainized for having a voice and so you can say the one thing, check, check to see, am I even saying things that line up with how I'm treating black women and girls? Yeah. There's always a gap between perceived belief and perceived behavior. And I wonder if we're doing enough work. Well, let me answer that. We're not doing enough work <laughs> to close the gap between what we say we believe and, the, and what our behaviors are communicating. Okay. When when we're silent about the misogyny we see in our young boys, particularly to uh, women, young black girls, and we're silent about that, we don't check it. We don't, we don't use it as a teachable moment to instruct. We're complicit when we allow a black girl to be overtalked in the middle of a class discussion. We're complicit when we see them pushed aside, not picked, and we don't do anything about it. We're complicit. When we see rules that unfairly target them and we do mm-hmm. nothing to change them or to avoid even like putting it to the side so that they're not affected by it. When we don't stand in the gap for them, we're complicit. And so I want to go back to that canvas because you said something very key. You said it may feel like chaos. And I think that teachers who, especially teacher prep programs, Right. You come out feeling like if you don't have control, Mm. then you aren't teaching. You aren't doing this thing right. It is all about high control metrics. And so chaos would feel um, inappropriate for a teacher. Um, Going back to that canvas, you know, after we've centered ourselves, we've grounded ourselves and we've created space for the soul that it's in this embodied soul 
that comes into our our schools? What else can we do to continue to help them flourish? I think that there needs to be space for the kids to, or call the kids, the young people, try mm-hmm. some space for the young people to to speak, to express. It yeah. it can't be receiving all day, and then proving that I I received what you said, yeah. proving that I you know let me receive, let me prove. I think where is you know the space for expression. And actually getting, you know, that's when you also can have this opportunity to learn the people that you're trying to help. You give them the opportunity to share their voices. And for the young Black women and Black girls and and Black youth in this, taking extra care to know that they've been socialized to not believe that their voice matters. And that's probably true for most marginalized, you know, children with marginalized identities. But for our black children and our black girls really taking care to know that, like, okay, it might it might take a little while for trust to be developed for me to actually hear what's really going on. There might not be a situation where every teacher can have access to the openness that they would like. But I do think that there is there needs to be some space and some outlet for the young people to actually be able to express outside of a a set of things to be tested on yeah yeah freer they need to be freer (laughs) seem like they're going to jail training to be honest they said they're going to prison training where even just schools that expect young people to sit and eat in silence i hear that that's still a thing in places i'm like we really eat in silence i don't that's not how eating happens at my house eating is social eating like it's not going to be in silence, but it really, the more a school feels like a prison, the, I just, that, and that might feel like control, but is that what we want? Like, we can't want that. Yeah. Yeah. And to think that we would rip apart someone's cultural understandings for our preferences. I'd rather them be silent and seated than them to be expressive because what happens if they're expressive? What happens? What if we allowed them space to be? What would happen? And there's always this embedded, not only distrust, distrust, but like, I'm gonna go back to deficit ideology that says if we allow them space, they're going to do this. Yeah, Whatever this fear. is, yes. It's, it is this fear that is, uh, underlying the foundation from which we must control the black body. I think yeah. about uh, when I came into teaching, I was handed a book called Teach Like a Champion. And in that book, it told you, um, they gave you a lot of practices to, to, to use in your classroom and things like be seen looking, where you had to position yourself so the students saw that you were looking at what they were doing, right? If as they were coming into your door, so you could greet and look, greet and look. And I think about that being wielded as a weapon to say, in the same way that someone with a badge will, show me your hands. Show me your hands. Show me, like, put your hands where I can see them. Are they mm. on the pencil? Are they on, are they on the gun? Mm. Right. All of these things happen 
because of an embedded fear. And if I don't control that thing, then my fear goes unchecked and it's going to be me or you. And that's why these things are done to and not with. Yeah. I think that's such a big, big question for people who are creating space. Like, is what I'm ideating based in fear or is it based in love hmm. and a true desire to nurture this human being towards their best expression of themselves or their best outcome for their life? You can look at your your decision making and really say to yourself, you know, you know, when you're making a, a decision out of fear for your job or for some performance metrics or for whatever the case may be. Is it out of fear? Do you feel obligated to something that is not these young people who are in your care? Are you like, what is the thing that is not based in actual love for the human beings and the development of who they're going to become? Yeah. That's it's like, you can, you can sit with your own self and ask those questions, yes. come up with your ideas based out of love. And like I said, it might end up looking like chaos. It's just like, this is not what the school system is. And it's like, just let yourself dream first. Mm -hmm. You can refine and call later, but if you never get to the point where you allow yourself to even imagine what would an actual nutritious educational experience feel like because you're so bound to the fear and the obligations to what exists already or what you're being measured by, it's not going to work. Let your dreams be free. Mm. Mm. I, uh, I want, I hope that somebody who's listening will just pause right there and just sit, sit with that. Um, I want to, I want to do two things as we round out our time. Uh, this episode is, is, is appropriately called Dear Black Girl. And I hope that an educator would play this for the black girls in their room. Uh, that that our black staff at all levels would play this for their sons and for their daughters to hear. But if we're writing a letter to to the black girls in our schools, what are some things that you would want them to know? Dear Black Girl, what would you say after that? Dear Black Girl, your desire for safety, for love, for whatever dream you're carrying in your heart, it's valid. Hmm. It's valid and it matters and it's important. You're going to face a lot that comes from outside in the world perhaps in your family, in your community, that's gonna give you an idea that your safety, your desires, your interests don't matter, but they do. They do, and I also, dear black girl, wanna to say to you, for every time that you have to over, overdo something because you're overcompensating for unfairness in the world, I wish you didn't have to do that. And I'm sorry that that's your reality. I'm sorry that that's our reality. And I wish I could hug you right now, black girl. I deeply appreciate those words. And um, I, hope, I hope that even the black girl within the black women listening can hear that and, and know that they are valued, that somewhere in these yet to be United States, that there are people that value them, love them, and appreciate them. Uh, dear black girl, you are enough. Dear black girl, 
you will change the world. How can folks connect with you, Keisha? How can folks support your work? And uh, yeah, just connect with all that you're doing. All right. You can you can find out about most things I do at KeishaGarrison.com. That's where you can see my my work as a speaker. My uh, I didn't mention my podcast, You Better, which is all about personal discovery and personal empowerment. You can check that out there, or you can go to HeyBlackSeattle.com to see what I'm up to for my community locally where I live. Um, for everybody listening, please, uh, it would be <laughs> we would get up from this podcast to not do anything different if you hear a podcast entitled dear black girl and you don't support the one that's on the podcast so, <laughs> so please tap into her work uh follow her on social media and allow for her to uh to feel the support of a loving community Till next Thank time you. y'all let's keep pushing